Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 26. And we have been in Isaiah 7 and 8. Now we're jumping ahead to Isaiah 26. This is the material that the church has recommended. And the idea is we're going to be looking through, as you can see on the screen just a minute ago, through the major prophets, looking for Jesus in the major prophets and learn some things. And so today the theme for the first half hour here is the Messiah who brings peace. And in some respects we have looked at the whole issue of the exile and the judgment and all the rest. And now we come to Jesus who is the one who promises to use the Hebrew word shalom. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute and how that changes everything and how we find our peace in who we trust. And we live at peace with others because we trust in God to make things right. And of course we believe in a sovereign God who keeps us at peace because his promises never fail. So we're going to look at the first uh, six verses here. In the interest of time, I'm going to summarize those rather than read every verse, but uh, let me again encourage you to kind of read ahead so that this is familiar territory, because here we see that in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And so this is, in a sense, a song or a psalm, and we have the idea of a strong city, salvation, opening the gates, talking about in verse 3 about perfect peace, verse 4 about trusting in God, verse 5 the fact that he has humbled the inhabitants and then lays it low, the foot uh, tramples it, and the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So the first third of this chapter looks at this idea that God gives us peace, and Jesus gives us peace, as we trust in his grace and his mercy. And so real quickly we see that we were moving from, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, the idea of the Messiah's advent, and we'll certainly maybe come back to that as we get closer to Christmas. Pastor Graham today was talking about the incarnation as well. And now we're going to praise, adoration, and exaltation. And really this passage is just an opportunity for us to hear the praise and even just the spiritual vitality of people who have trusted God for all things. You know, in Second Peter, it talks about trusting God for all things. And here we have the same concept here as well. And so here Isaiah opens up the chapter with a call for not just simply one group, of individuals, but, you know, certainly talks about a strong city, but the implication is, is for everyone. And if that applied to everyone in the Old Testament, I think we can learn from that today here living in the New Testament. And I think the principle I get from that is, is God is not just dependent upon the super saints. You know, we've all met people that are prayer warriors, you know, that just are great uh, prayer warriors that uh, focus on prayer. We've met people that just really seem to always just have this sense of worship in their lives. And we say, well, I'm glad they can do it because there's really no place for me. I'm just kind of your run-of-the-mill Christian. Nope, I don't see this. I see this as an admonition for all of us, you know, and we see that this is not just for a few super saints. And rather, we are the beneficiaries of God's goodness, drawing our hearts to praise Him, and certainly that is one thing we get to do um, every Sunday morning right here at Prestonwood. And then we see that uh, a reminder that whereas in the past, we especially saw that on Isaiah 7, this idea that, well, we'll just hide behind these safe walls. And I think the implication we learned from before was no political alliance, uh, no economic system, no personal prestige or physical strength was enough to offer final protection. If anything, here it is the recognition that we find our protection, and as we'll see in just a minute, our peace in God alone. And so all this military, all the infrastructure,
structures and everything were pointless if God is not on your side. And that's kind of the theme that Isaiah is bringing here. And then it brings us to this very key word, the Hebrew word shalom. Now, that's not a word we tend to use very much, but if you go over to Israel, I was just talking to one of you, we're going to go with Pastor over there to Israel, you'll hear the word shalom a lot more. Uh, I do have one individual who works at Probe, and he ends every one of his emails with the word shalom, which I always appreciate that. But it's not a word we use very often. But as I got into this, I thought, maybe that's one we should talk more about, because shalom is more than just political peace or social peace, although it is certainly used that way in Israel to this day. And it certainly is applicable even as we're talking here. But it's the idea of shalom being kind of the wholeness of being. Are you at peace? Um, I ran into people all the time. Even this week I got some emails from different people saying, oh, I'm just really stressed. You know, you ever said that? You know, I'm just, I'm I'm crazy. You know, I'm I'm just going crazy. You know, I'm just crazy. uh, All the rest of the ideas that you have here. I'm just kind of losing it. You know, I've heard a lot of people say that. And this is the idea of really the fact that, you know, I'm in harmony. I recognize that I'm where God wants me to be. And even in the midst of all the turmoil and chaos, which Pastor Graham was preaching about even today, we can still have peace in the midst of chaos. We can have peace and wholeness even in the midst of turmoil, even when the circumstances of our lives are really disruptive. And so I think that's one of these ideas here of grace and mercy and shalom. Then look at verse 4. Here it talks about the fact that the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This week we were in Oregon, and one of the rocks there is what's called Haystack Rock, which is about as tall as this whole area there. It's huge, you know, or uh, going up and down the Oregon coast, you've got these huge cliffs. And, of course, there are tsunami warnings. matter of fact, where the school is, if there's ever a really big tsunami, we all head for the hills really quickly. But you recognize that even if the water comes rushing in, those... Rock faces will continue. And that's the illustration here of a huge, immovable rock cliff. And look at that. The Lord forever. The Lord is an everlasting rock. You can see that there has been a lot of erosion, but the rock still stands. There's been some erosion of the cliff, but the cliff is still there. And that's kind of the implication of of how we can trust in the immovable and this huge rock, which is our Lord. And then, of course, we're encouraged not just to trust in a temporary or fleeting solution, but we're to look to God for peace. And if you're taking some notes, you might pull out your pen right now and put Philippians 4, 7, because I saw a real connection between Isaiah 26 and Philippians 4. And here it talks about the peace that passes all understanding. And just remind yourself, when Paul wrote that letter uh, to the church in Philippi, where was he? He was in prison, he was in chains, and probably was ill-treated. And so when he's talking about a peace that passes all understanding, couldn't be a better illustration of the shalom that is offered that can only be found in Christ Jesus. In his circumstances, probably dark, 
dank, difficult, uh, perhaps had been beaten, beaten, we don't know at that particular point in time, in shackles, and he uses the word joy time and time again in the book of Philippians. And if you want to illustrate shalom, I think you have a very good New Testament example. Let's get to the second uh, section here, and that is verse 7 and following. And here, in Isaiah, they talk about the path of righteousness and how that is level. It talks about the path of your judgments. Then it talks about our own personal response in verse 9, how our soul yearns for the night. And then if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. Very powerful phrase there. And then your hand is lifted up, verse 11. Then verse 12, we say, O Lord, uh, will ordain peace. And then the statement here that our God is God and lords uh, besides you have ruled over us. talks about those who are dead that will not live. And then finally in verse 15, but you have increased the nation, Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. And so here again, we see this idea of being peaceful and applying this idea of shalom. Live in God's presence and experience God's peace. Obviously, to change the way we live. People looking at you say, okay, I know you're going through a lot of difficulty right now. This company is going through a lot. Your family's going through a lot. And you seem to be riding above the waves. What is it about you? And I think one of the greatest opportunities to witness to non-believers is for them to see something different in your life. And then he talks about the fact that the path of righteousness is level. doesn't have a lot of boulders, that'll rock. You know, if you follow the scriptures, if you follow what God has intended, you have a pretty good idea of what each step is going to be because it's guided by God's word as you begin to walk. And it talks about the approach to life or the steps in the midst of every season of life. And so again, just a really powerful idea of how to apply shalom or peace to us. Then in verse 8, it uses the word wait for you here. The Hebrew word there is really kind of an eager anticipation. What it reminded me, remember when um, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, and remember what the father did? What was he doing? He was waiting and he was looking. So it's that idea of anticipation. So we're to live each day with a deep trust that God has a plan and his plans will never fail. Many of you have had a chance to hear Gary Frazier in here because he has a little bumper sticker. Could it happen today? You know, there's another sense of anticipation. Uh, anticipation of what God's going to do in your life, but also an anticipation that someday we're gone. You know, the Lord will return. And so again, those ideas of waiting or being in eager anticipation is another thing. A peacefulness in terms of where we are in our Christian walk, but an anticipation for what God is going to do even tomorrow as you go to work or you go to school or you uh, go about your day-to-day activities, whatever it might be, an anticipation what God might want to do and how he might engage our hearts, our bodies, and our minds. And so whether we're awake or lying in bed asleep, our soul should be longing after God. Then verse 10, we see this concept here. What happens if indeed we show favor towards the wicked? This 
is again this idea of judgment that came against Israel. Points out that the wicked reject God's righteous ways and miss out on beholding God's glory. Uh, This week when I was teaching, I spent at least one section just talking about the atheists, the leading atheists who believe in evolution and how, you know, they really are attacking the Christian faith. And certainly we have seen that. And here we see the wicked assume that really there's no consequences for their actions. I mean, if you really, if you reject the idea of God, who are you accountable to? To yourself. And in just a minute, we're going to talk about some of the younger generation. They believe that they are the final arbiters of what are right or wrong. We'll get to that in just a minute. But they not only miss the positive peace of God's loving presence, but they also miss the warning signs that God will bring them into judgment. Remember one time Jesus said, you know, you look at the sky and you can recognize that a storm is coming. But here you're looking at our culture and you don't see of a coming judgment. And that was true in the day of Jesus. It was even true back then in Isaiah's day when they just simply, to use my teenage daughter's favorite word during the teen years, they were clueless. You know, they just did not have any idea of a judgment that was coming. And then finally, we talk about those faithless rulers. Those are the rulers in Israel before God brought judgment. And here they stood over Judah. They uh, were able to, as it says here, provide favor to the wicked. The evildoers were succeeding. And in Isaiah 5, it even talks about those who were righteous sometimes were put in jail. So the bad guys were winning, the good guys were losing. But then, as Isaiah is trying to point out, here's the rest of the story. They've died, they're passed on, they led people into idolatry, they stood in arrogant independence. But they're all gone now, aren't they? You know, there's, they were evil for a time, but sometimes we say, well, will there always be evil in the land? No, because there won't always be evil people in the powers of position in the land. And here we see the righteous remnant talks about being humbled at this point and now sees God's eternal kingship as the only source of power. Yeah, they looked really powerful when they were actually able to help evildoers, but they're no longer around. Let's finish off the chapter then, verses 16 and following. Here we see again, O Lord, in distress they sought you. Uh, Verse 17, I love the illustration. Those of you that have had a child, we're talking about women here, um, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So we were because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhe, but we have given birth to wind. Just powerful little phrase there in the Hebrew. And then goes on to say in verse 19, But the dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. They will, uh, those who dwell in the d- dust, there will be a promise of the resurrection. Although the word resurrection is not here, this is obviously a New Testament application to what we see here in the Old Testament. Verse 20, come my people, enter your chambers. And then verse 21, for behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. So just a very powerful comment or two about judgment. But even in the judgment, we see these promises. I'll get to that in just a minute. But first of all, the future hope for God's people. Recognize at this point, they are probably very discouraged. 
taken into exile, scattered. You're starting to see the beginning of what we now call the diaspora because some of them do not come back to Jerusalem and you have the scattering of the Jews. You wonder whether the Jewish line is going to die out. You wonder if the culture is going to continue, whether the traditions will carry on to the next generation. And so here, this is a promise of future hope. In what looks like a dire circumstance for you, nevertheless, if we keep our eyes on God, his peace will help us travel through these dark places. In verses 16 and 17, even give us the idea of the kind of dependence that we want to have in that regard. talks about the pregnant women. But in many ways, this also represents our human experience. This is what it's like for individuals who are outside of God's grace. I think everybody in this room at one time or another has gone through some really significant challenges. And if you don't think so, when EJ comes up here in a few minutes, we talk about just even the latest prayer requests. Some of us are going through some really difficult times and have gone through some difficult times. And you've probably said, I know I've said it many times, I don't know how somebody who doesn't have the Lord can possibly go through some of these. And this is just a reminder of what it's like to be outside of God's grace, going through the trials that are inevitable for all of us, to go through those without God's grace and if nothing else to rejoice that we have God to depend upon. And then here it talks about how humanity labors through these long life passages and paths and nothing really satisfies outside of God himself. And if nothing else we see that we work very hard, sometimes with great sincerity to achieve peace in this life and we try to find that through relationships and material goods and experiences maybe even any kind of idol that we make in order to bring some happiness into our life, to bring some meaning, and it really does not satisfy. And so here's where we have these powerful promises that to those who trust God, those who put faith in God alone will rise again. Death does not have the last day. Death is the final enemy to be destroyed, 1 Corinthians. Ultimately, the last word doesn't come from death. The last word comes from God. And in the midst of this, we see kind of this angst and this emptiness in verses 17 and 18, just really, again, talking about like a pregnant woman. And the resolution finds itself in the resurrection, which we see in the New Testament. And, of course, then we see while the restoration of Judah, the southern kingdom, national Judah, would bring relief to God's people, the real final way in which they would find peace and to day which we find peace is the promise of newness of life and the promise of the resurrection. And finally concludes with this about a coming judgment once again. This is the powerful verses in 20, especially in verse 21, where it talks about the fact that you might just say, okay, well, the evil doers die. Great. But is there any final judgment? And the answer is, yes, there is. And we see that as well, not only here in Isaiah, but we see this in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And interesting enough, verses 20 and 21, if you look at this, the idea of entering your chambers and shut your doors, I think that's an allusion back to Noah. Because remember, Noah, Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and their family comes into the ark, and then what happens? They shut the door. You know, 
Actually, it seems to indicate that God shuts the door. And here's the idea. Okay, judgment is coming. Those inside the ark are saved and those outside the ark are not. So I think that idea of the door closing is the case. I think it's an idea of God's preservation and how, if nothing else, we should take refuge in God who is our rock and who is our salvation. So that's kind of a quick overview of Isaiah 26. But again, we see just tremendous opportunities opportunities for us to have this shalom of peace, to look with eager expectation for what God might even be doing this afternoon and tomorrow in your life, and then finally to recognize that the ultimate hope is in the resurrection. Okay, the Ask Kirby question, um, which is kind of a combination of a couple of different questions I got verbally from those of you. But how do the generations following, that would be the millennial generation and the iGen generation, differ from the current generations, which would be the baby boomers and baby busters? So what I want to try to do is for just a few minutes go through this and talk about how if you um, are witnessing to the younger generation, concerned about it, or maybe even if you're in a business, and you're hiring some of these people, I wanted to give you some ideas about that. And so the first thing is I have this kind of cute little diagram that was developed about the differences between, say, the baby boomers, Generation X, which we oftentimes call baby busters, Generation Y, which we've called the millennials, and Generation Z, which uh, at least Gene Twenge calls the iGen generation. And I'll try to explain that in just a minute. And I'm going to go into that in more detail, but just to show you, notice how they're dressed. Uh, the baby boomers were influenced in large part by the 1950s. That looked kind of like 1950s dress? Yeah, pretty much so. Um, they grew up at a time when the president was Dwight Eisenhower, then John F. Kennedy, and then maybe came of age even while Lyndon Johnson was there. So that would be the baby boom generation. I'll give you the specificities of the dates in just a minute. Then the next generation, the so-called Gen X, lots of people have it after 64. They have it a little bit earlier. But nevertheless, they were influenced in large part by the 1960s. Does that look like the 1960s to you? Okay, a little bit. And they were influenced by the Vietnam War, later by Watergate, uh, by OPEC and uh, energy crises, things of that nature. Then the Gen Y, most people have it starting in 1980. They have it a little bit different in this diagram. But these are the individuals that were born during the Reagan years, grew up during a time of, of significant economic expansion. Uh, they are so-called millennial generation because they kind of came a, of age just before the new millennium. And then this last generation, Gen Z, Generation Z, is those individuals that were born after 1995. Why are they called iGen? Well, Gene Twenge, who's at San Diego State University, calls them iGen because they have lived in a world of i iPods, iPhones, iPads, those kinds of things. They are the most digital generation, even more so than the millennials. So anyway, that gives you a little bit of an overview. Let me give you a, a little more specificity. This came out two years ago, so you have to add some dates here. But most people say that baby boomers fit between 1946 and 1964. Why did they use those numbers? Well, 1946 was the first time we had three million births in America. Never had three million births in one year until 1946. And the Census Bureau thought, well, that was kind of post-war phenomenon, pent-up demand, whatever. But then every year after that, we had three million births, and then pretty soon we had four million births until 1964 
1954 was the last year we had 4 million births in one year. So, from 1946 to 1964, we had about 76 million babies born into the world. Uh, with immigration, the number went up a little bit. Now it's dropped a little bit because some of the older boomers are no longer alive. So, And you can see, uh, I also have a number up here on annual income. They've done pretty well financially. Matter of fact, they did very well financially, but now some of them in retirement are dropping the annual household income down just a little bit. So you go from that to what is oftentimes called the baby busters, because you had a baby boom, then you had a baby bust, or that would be Generation X. Those born, most people go from 1965 to 1980. This one says 1979. I won't quibble about that. About 66 million came into uh, the world at that time in America, have at the moment the highest annual household income, simply because they're in the peak earning years, and so they've done fairly well. And then the from 1980 on to 1994-95 are the so-called millennial generation, uh, about 80 million of them, and so this is now the largest generation. You had kind of a baby boom, a little bit of a baby bust, and then a baby boomlet again, uh, not because fertility was going up, but because there were just so many baby boomer women that had babies, and those were the millennials. And uh, they are um, a getting into some of their peak earning years, uh, so their income is starting to go up. Although, as we've talked about before in this class, many of them graduate with college with massive, massive student loan debt. And also in a, what up until recently has been a really down economy. So we'll see whether those um, income levels go up. And then the final one is the iGen generation from 1995 up to current time here. About 74 million. Of course, uh, they're just now coming into that age group. But it gives you just a little bit of an idea of who they are. So this pretty much covers most everybody in the room, right? Now. Let's see if we can spend a little bit of time talking about those two groups. And I want to do this so that you can understand if you're going to do church visitation. We have uh, training that we do here for evangelism. So if you're going and knocking on doors, you know, and you meet some people, you get a little bit of a sense of maybe what they might be thinking. If you're trying to understand the people that are working around you, that would be helpful. Um, so, or if you're, like I said, if you're a manager, you got some of these people in your company, in your business, how do I work with them? To me, the best book on the subject, especially from a Christian point of view, is this book by Tom and Jess Rayner. Tom Rayner has been up until recently with Lifeway, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I'm a Southern Baptist, so I'm already partial to that. But even if I were a Presbyterian, I'd still say this, I think, is the best book on the millennials. Because a number of years ago, not only did uh, Tom Rayner, who's about my age, a baby boomer, and his son, Jess, who is a millennial, do the research but they pulled together perhaps one of the most extensive surveys ever done of the millennial generation. So with that as background, let me share with you a little bit of what they were able to learn. The first thing is that they're very diverse. And by that I mean, first of all, ethnically. You know, it used to be much more of an Anglo society. It is now much more, you know, ethnically diverse in America for all sorts of reasons, but also socially. As we go through this, I know the first thing you're going to be thinking is, okay, you're giving me a description of a millennial, and maybe if you're a millennial in here, you're going, that doesn't describe me. Or if you're saying, well, my children or my grandchildren are not like that, I would agree. There are going to be lots of exceptions to the general rule. 
that's always the case, but even more so because these are generations that are a lot more affected by a lot of different factors. Just think about this. For example, we talk about the millennial generation parented by parents who were like helicopter parents, you know, or snowplow parents. Well, that would be true if you had an intact family, but what if you have a divorce in the family? Or what if you have uh, parents that were very dysfunctional? You know, you get real differences there. Uh, you've got differences between uh, families that may be Asian families or Latino families or African-American families compared to Anglo families and all sorts of differences. So there's going to be a lot of variation. But I'm going to tell you generally what we found. One that I've mentioned in, in this class before is, is that when we look at those millennials who by the age of 26 have a college degree, they have a higher percentage of college degrees than any generation that has preceded them. And with the issue of cost of college, maybe also a higher percentage in those that follow them. So we'll see where that is. But uh, And again, we can have a real debate as to whether or not a college degree makes you educated, but we won't get in there right now. They tend to be very hopeful, uh, which you'll see very different in just a minute when we look at the iGen generation. In this survey done by LifeWay of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millennials, they had one statement in there, I believe I can do something great. 96% agreed with that. So they tend to be somewhat optimistic, somewhat hopeful. They are very relational. You'll see this with the two newest generations. Uh, they want to communicate. They want to connect. They use social media to do so. Baby boomers oftentimes tended to have talk about a, remember the word, generation gap. There used to be the phrase in the 1960s, don't trust anybody over 30. Then baby boomers got over 30, so don't trust anybody under 30. I guess I don't know. But, you know, there was a real schism between the builder generation and the boomer generation generally. That is not the case with these two generations we'll talk about. This comes actually not from their book, but some other material, because I thought I might, since we talked about technology, say that without a doubt, the millennial generation may be the most technologically savvy generation ever. Most of them own a smartphone. When I looked at the percentage, it was off the charts. At least 40% of them have a tablet, which, uh, again, if you're a millennial and you're sitting here, you say, don't you love Parker, because we've made it all very digitally accessible. Uh, millennials do everything in tech-related areas in a higher percentage than any other generation, on very significantly so. And they're the most likely to use the Internet or send or receive an, an email, at least occasionally. The numbers I looked at are 90%, and I'm going, what about the other 10%? I, I think that could have probably be up to 99%, but maybe there's some that just don't like technology. But So they are very technologically savvy, for sure. Their view of marriage, very different for a couple of reasons. First of all, they tend to be marrying later. When you look at the median age of first marriage, and this comes from Census Bureau data, they are marrying, men are marrying five years later, women are marrying five years later than the previous generation. That also brings us to the second point. They're more likely to live together. Even in the LifeWay survey, they found that uh, more than 60%, even back then, and I think the percentage would be higher, said, well, I just want to live together to see if it works out. The argument is, well, you know, you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on. You wouldn't buy a car without a test drive. Of course, I point out that, you know, a car doesn't get its feelings hurt if you don't buy the car and uh, a couple other things, but nevertheless. And another one, which I think relates to 
to the conversation I had this week with the second year students at the Bible school, a majority, and this is a few years ago, agreed with the statement, I see nothing wrong with people of the same gender getting married. And this came out before same-sex marriage is legalized. I would believe that percentage next time we do the survey, probably at 80%. They're also the least religious generation in American history. It's not that they're against religion, it's just they just don't even think about religion. It's just not top of the mind. It's just not an issue. So if you're witnessing to someone in this generation that is not a churchgoer, not necessarily come from a religious background, this just may be a new idea. Sometimes they'll just listen to you and say, I've just never met anybody like you. I've never even heard anybody talk about those kinds of things. Or it's just something I don't think I need. I feel like I'm doing pretty good with my life just the way it is. Let me keep moving here because I want to end on time. But uh, also this comes from, again, a survey, another survey rather than the one for um, the LifeWay survey. But it relates to what I'm going to talk about in just a minute when we get to the next generation because millennials turn out to be the most entrepreneurial-minded generation ever. If you look at one survey that I found, only 13% of people in that survey, those respondents, said that their career goal was involving climbing the corporate ladder to become a CEO or president. Whereas, by contrast, almost two-thirds of millennials said their goal was starting their own business. So you can see they are very entrepreneurial related. In a minute when I talk about the iGen generation, you're going to see they are not. And I'll have some explanations why. One explanation for this is many of them grew up and came of age during the uh, the booming 1990s. Remember this? You had the dot-com burst eventually, but before you had the dot-com, you know, rise and you had no major war other than one might say the Bosnia war uh, you had the only the closest time we've had in our generation of balancing the budget under President Bill Clinton and Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich so they grew up in a time where there was a tremendous economic expansion, so they tended to be pretty optimistic about their chances of going out there and building a business. And so I think that's part of the explanation there. What about witnessing? In light of what Pastor Graham shared today, I want to put this figure in here. In the LifeWay survey, they found that 34% or a third of the millennials said no one can know what will happen when they die. Isn't that interesting? So I think one of the great evangelistic opportunities here is uh, if I could share with you tonight that you really could know for certain where you're going to go when you die, would you be interested? And so this becomes, I think, a perfect evangelistic opportunity. When you say, I don't, nobody knows what happens after you die, would you like me to share with you that you could know for certain that you would be in the presence of God? You know, that I think is a really great entree. Something else, uh, we talked about the nuns. That is, back when the survey was done, nearly 3 in 10, and now it's more than 3 in 10, because I've been following the plot, especially Steve Cable on our staff, as, um, when asked to describe themselves, will either check the box atheist, agnostic, or no preference. These are what are called the nuns. In fact, there's a great book, maybe I'll come and do that sometime in the future, of the rise of nuns. So what we're dealing with are a lot of individuals that aren't thinking about religion. If they thought about it at all, maybe have learned some things at the fee 
feet of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, the so-called New Atheist. So I think it's going to be more and more important to not only share what the Bible has to say, but know how to maybe answer some of the criticisms that this generation might have about the Bible. And that's one of the things I spent some time this week training the um, first-year students. Two-thirds rarely or never attend religious services. We have somebody in the class that used to be in our class who actually had been teaching at the Dallas Art Institute, and she said one of the things she would do is they would not only look at art, but they'd look at architecture, and as they were doing architecture, she would always take them into a church. And nearly half of the kids said, this is the first time I've ever been in a church. So that's a different experience. And so, again, we're going to have to recognize they're not necessarily the people that are going to come in the doors of Prestonwood. Um, They're not going to come to us. We're going to have to go to them. And I appreciate the fact that we've had even some great exercises here and outreaches here at the examine class. The church has done this in the past. Even what we're going to do for, what, Halloween? These are ways that you can reach into your neighborhood. They aren't necessarily people that have gone to church and left church. They maybe never went to church in the first place. And so that's just a different kind of evangelistic foundation. When we look at that, we recognize that a fourth of millennials are are active in a church, but if you look at those who claim some kind of born-again experience, it really tells me that a good number of people in many churches are seekers. And, you know, maybe not so much here because we have an altar call each week, but I mentioned Gary Frazier just a minute ago. He and I were talking the other day, and he went to this one Bible-teaching church. They teach the Bible every single week, but they never have an altar call. If you know Gary Frazier, he always has an altar call. Okay, this is an evangelical Bible-teaching church, he has an altar call, three dozen people come forward and accept Jesus Christ. Because you have, even in Bible churches, people that are seekers, searchers, as Pastor Graham said. And so, and that may be not as high a percentage here at Prestonwood, but you can go to any church service here this Sunday, and you have all sorts of people sitting in the pews that are not born-again Christians. And so there's just a real evangelistic opportunity, even inside the church, as well as outside the church. I could go on and on, but I want to end on time, so let me, if I can, go to another book that I've been mentioning by Jean Twain. She's at San Diego State came up with the phrase iGen and this is again a group that has really been influenced by that. First of all, one of the things we find out is they're much more focused on work than the millennial generation. A higher percentage of them are willing to work overtime to get a job done. They're much less entrepreneurial than millennials though. Uh, so that's kind of interesting and I would suggest to you that I think the changed perception has to do with the fact that they grew up and came of age during what I'll call the Great Recession of 2008. They've seen kind of a down economy. And as I pointed out before, during the last almost 8 to 10 years, the median family income has gone up only, what was it, like three-tenths of a percent, which when adjusted for inflation means it's been going down. Now it's dropped, it's increased dramatically. As a matter of fact, the highest it's ever been when adjusted for inflation ever. But if you've grown up during a time when there was a down economy, they tend to be much less on entrepreneurial. They're more willing to work overtime to get the job done. They're more focused on their work than, say, the millennial generation. 
They also grew up more slowly as teens. Uh, they're taking longer to work, taking longer to drive, taking longer to date. Some of you can remember the day you were 16 years of age, what did you do? You got your license. Remember that? Not uh, You will meet 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds just now talking about getting their license, for example. Gene Twenge has a good quote that comes from one of our articles. Managers who learn to be cheerleaders for millennials will find they're more like therapists, life coaches, or parents for the iGeners. He's, again, built, born after 1995. The iGen generation seems more concerned with safety as well. Uh, they've turned out to be very safe drivers so far as we follow them. They're less likely to binge drink than previous generations. So they really have an issue of safety and security that also surfaces somewhere else. They want emotional safety, meaning they want to be protected from offensive comments and conflicts. Ever heard the word snowflakes? Okay, see what I'm talking about here. And that has been perpetuated even on the college campuses. And they still go to college on a very significant numbers, but it's wondering whether or not that'll taper off because of the increase in cost of college every year. A couple more real quickly. <clears throat> this is a direct quote from Gene Quench. This generation socializes differently using their phones instead of getting together in person. When they were asked if it was important to make friends or have contact with lots of people, the percentage who agreed with that statement was at an all-time low. So I'll get together with my buddies, meaning we'll FaceTime <laughs> or Skype or something like that. I won't really physically get together with them. And if you go into a restaurant, there's four of them. Are they looking at each other? No, they're all looking at their phones, sometimes sharing stuff back and forth from their phones. Nick loves that. Okay. Some even have trouble with what we would consider to be basic social skills because of that. A very significant issue to address. And in the interest of time, let me just mention that Gene Twinge is not a Christian. I'm still looking for the best Christian book out there, although somebody told me I should write it, you know, like I need to write another book. But the good news is is some Christians have begun to survey the Gen Z, and that is the Barna Research Group. And so I just wanted to share a few things that they have been able, where they've asked more Christian kinds of questions uh, to surface some of that. By the way, you might say, if it's Gen Z, what's next? Nothing. Jean Twenge argues that this will be the last generation. What does she mean by that? She means that now change is happening so quickly that you won't have a generational cohort like you've always had before. And so if she's right, it will mean we'll just have fragments from now on because the digital world has changed everything. Let's look at the Barna survey real quickly. They found that one quarter, they still call them Gen Z, so we'll call them Gen Z for a moment, um, strongly agreed that what is morally right or wrong changes over time based on society. Why would they say that? Candidate Barack Obama and candidate Hillary Clinton um, would be 10 years ago said that we should not legalize same-sex marriage. By the time eight years was over, outgoing President Barack Obama said that we uh, applauded having same-sex marriage and candidate Hillary Clinton applauded it and implied that anybody who did not agree with that change was a bigot. You can see how quickly some of that changed, you know, almost overnight. 
So you can see why they would think that. They've seen remarkable changes in attitudes in a very short period of time. They also said that the person, you, should be the moral arbiter of what is right. 21% of Gen Z, 23% of Malay believe that the individual is his own moral authority. The Bible's not my authority. Even my parents are not moral authority. I'm my moral authority. And you can see that kind of gets back to what it says in the scriptures where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Okay, a couple more in the survey real quickly. About 4 in 10 Gen Z feel a strong conviction that marriage ought to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. This is gener- two generations that have grown up seeing the highest rates of divorce in the history of American society. But because they are fearful of that, they're less likely to get married or they're more likely to postpone marriage because they do still believe in it, but they've got a problem. Only a fifth believe the sex before marriage is wrong, which is kind of on par with some of the other ones, and they are also the least likely to take an issue with the issue of same-sex marriage. Only one-fifth are opposed to same-sex marriage. So I think that percentage, like I said, is about 80%. So, a lot more I could cover, but again, I always like to end on time. But if nothing else, I want you to, first of all, recognize that these newer generations are our mission field. We need to certainly bring them to the Lord. We need to disciple them. We need to grow them. They're the future deacons at Prestonwood. They're the future managers of your company and corporation. They're the future politicians. And so, we certainly should be concerned about them. They need the gospel. And we need to, if nothing else, as we've seen some things here, really pray about their circumstances and pray about our response to them. And in the future, we'll come back to some of those issues. But hopefully I've answered a few questions about these generations following us that are in positions of leadership in the future. Parker?